My grandfather actually worked with George Westinghouse creating hydropower in this country 100 years ago. My dad worked for Westinghouse for 37 years, so it's kind of in the blood. It was the original renewable. In some sense, it was the forgotten renewable, and it's a foundational renewable. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about hydroelectric power, one of our oldest forms of electricity, and among all of the sectors I've covered so far, I'd go so far to say it's the Rodney Dangerfield of energy sources. I mean, that's the story of my life. No respect. I don't get no respect at all. You kid nothing. No respect at all. Hydroelectric power is like that employee at work who gets a shiny new laptop because they're new. Meanwhile, you have to put up with a five-year-old Lenovo with viruses and a keyboard that's jammed. Renewables have made incredible gains in the last decade, and our guest today helped play a role in that expansion. But whereas the new kids, wind and solar, have been given goodies to help thrive, it's almost like the folks forgot hydroelectric was here all along. And it's no small potato. Hydroelectric makes up nearly half of all the utility-scale renewable electric generation in this country. In 2015, it produced 10 times as much power as solar. Yet, you rarely see pictures of dams alongside windmills or solar cells when folks are talking about renewables. Several of my guests have been under the impression that the hydroelectric resources in this country are tapped out. But I think they could be confusing creating dams necessary for energy as opposed to electrifying existing dams. This is low-hanging fruit at its juiciest because of the 80,000 dams in the United States, and these are just the ones that could also produce electricity, only 3% are electrified. In addition, most of the hydroelectric infrastructure is over 50 years old. Just modernizing that fleet could save $7 billion a year in efficiency gains. Hydroelectric packs a huge punch in a small package. The facility I visit visited in July was an acre and a half. It had four turbines, just shy of 30 megawatts each. A solar farm would have to be over a thousand acres, and a wind farm, probably 3,000. You wouldn't find much better energy density in a facility run on fossil energy. Our guest points out that paperwork really slows down the development of these projects, nearly all of which are privately funded. But for an energy source that is renewable, reliable, and powerful as this, the opportunities are as wide open as a powerhouse running at full capacity. Our guest today is Dr. Christina Johnson, co-founder and now outgoing CEO of Cube Hydro Partners and owner and operator of hydroelectric facilities around the country. I say outgoing CEO because Dr. Johnson has accepted a job as chancellor of the State University of New York System, or SUNY. Dr. Johnson has had an impressive career before Cube Hydro. She was undersecretary of energy during the early Obama years. She's been dean of Duke Engineering School, provost and senior vice president of Johns Hopkins University. All three of her electrical engineering degrees are from Stanford, and she has four more honorary degrees. Our interview was over the phone, but I had a chance to meet Dr. Johnson at a centennial event last July commemorating the 100th year of the Narrows Hydroelectric Plant, located on the Yadkin River, about an hour from Charlotte. More on that visit after the show. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Christina Johnson. 
We're here with Dr. Christina Johnson, co-founder and CEO of Cube Hydro. And first question a lot of people have is hydroelectric is an older technology. It's a 19th century technology, I believe. And uh, <laughs> so what are some of the innovations we're seeing today in 2017? There are a number of innovations and you're quite right. It is one of the oldest ways we generated electricity. In fact, in 1917, it was 40% of the electricity produced in the United States came from hydroelectricity. We see today advances in aerating turbines. So you actually see some cases scalloping of the blades or little holes in the actual turbine blades that allows for minute bubbles, which increases the oxygenation and makes it more habitable for fish happenings. You also see fish-friendly turbines where the the rotating turbine inside the collar, if you will, that is such a thin separation now that fish don't get caught in between that, which is very important. You also see just higher efficiency. So we understand when these machines were first built, we didn't have the luxury of computers. So they were designed with slide rules and hauled up mountains on mules and backs of wagon trains. And it's pretty impressive what people were able to do at that time. And today with high-performance computing and computational fluid dynamics, dynamic models and understanding we can actually design a better way of converting hydropower, water power to mechanical than to electrical. So better efficiency, fish friendly, and better water habitat. I always like hearing about interesting water technologies and we'll get a little bit more into that in just a second. But one of the things I do on this podcast is I'll talk to the energy experts and at the very end, I'll ask them what they think of all the other energy technologies out there. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to these experts and they always get to hydroelectric, they all seem to be under this impression that the capacity for more hydroelectric in this country is kind of tapped out. And what would you say to that? Is that true? There's a couple answers to that. So the first one is there's 80,000 dams in the U.S. that do not produce electricity. There's only about 2,500 to 3,000 that do. So less than 3% of the dams that exist for recreation, navigation, irrigation, flood control, and water preservation in communities are not there to produce hydropower. So I think aggressively you could double the amount of hydropower in the U.S. Now recently the Department of Energy came out with a study called Visioning Hydropower 2030. And the idea is that we try to do 50,000 megawatts by 2050. So it's 50 by 50. So there's about 100,000 megawatts today, really looking at a 50% increase between now and 2050. I think the reason it takes so long is because there's permitting and because a lot of the best sites are government owned and owned by the Army Corps of Engineers. I think the top 81 out of 100 sites are owned and operated by the Army Corps that it could be powered. So we're not talking about building new dams in most part. We're just talking about powering the existing dams we have. I'll give you an example. We built Mahoney Creek. It was our first project. It's the first new hydropower plant built at an Army Corps dam in Pennsylvania in 25 years. The original permit on this project is over 20 years old. We bought it in 2012 and we had it operating by 2013. So once you get to a place where the license is issued from a permit, things can go pretty quickly. But can you imagine tying up money for 20 years? People just wouldn't do that. Yeah, unless it's a nuclear plant. I mean, I think we've seen some permits with those guys go quite a long time, have we not? Well, yeah. And, and that's <laughs> the other thing is as a private developer. So if you're a utility that's in a non-competitive market, then you can so-called rate base or put the cost, even if it takes 10 or 20 years, into the rate base and get the projects built. 
True for nuclear, true for hydro, true for coal, gas, all those. But as an independent power producer, it's much easier to build a solar power plant or a wind plant than it is to do hydropower. It sounds to me, Christina, that the key here is really cracking the code with the Army Corps of Engineers. Part of it's the Army Corps of Engineers. I think part of it is the financing model. If you had a way of financing the so-called soft costs, there aren't that many firms that have the expertise to do the environmental studies. They're expensive and then that ups the cost, which means fewer get done, which means then they're more expensive and it's just sort of this vicious cycle. I think what really needs to be done is kind of where Cube Hydro, I think, is going is taking more of that work in-house so we can control the costs, working with a few of the consulting firms so that they can get scale of business and that reduce the cost. So we're trying to figure out in the industry, how do you get the projects financed? How do you get them done in a timely manner so that financial markets will invest in them? Because right now we're not really valuing the renewable energy for what it's worth in terms of the externalities of carbon emissions. So, you know, it's complicated. (laughs) I would say it's complicated. With things like renewable portfolio standards, has that given hydroelectric a shot in the arm Yes, and it should be more of a shot in the arm. So here's an interesting thing. So because hydropower has been around for over 100 years, right, and this is just starting to happen with wind, you have projects now with wind that are 30 years old. Well, the technology has moved in wind. The platforms are taller. The blades are longer. They're more efficient. They're designed better. So now you've gone from maybe 20% capacity factor to nearly 40%. That's huge. So now we've learned what it takes, and now we're repowering hydro plants. Well, when we've repowered these hydropower plants to make sure they go for another 50 or 100 years, it should be considered to be a new hydropower plant. But the renewable portfolio standards don't always give it credit. So I think that the policy needs to catch up with the laws. So my mantra is if it's a new license, it's a new project. Hydropower, unfortunately, suffers a little bit because it's been around and really taken for granted. One of the things that we always talk here so much about with renewables is the intermittency issue, especially with the new kids on the block. You've been mentioning wind and solar and, you know, hydropower seems to have a lot more reliability built into it. Explain that to people. It's not exactly baseload. It's much more constant. I think you raise a great point. A lot of people don't appreciate this. So you take solar. It's what we call diurnal. It varies on a daily basis, right? You think about wind, it's variable on weekly basis. Now think about hydros, it's variable on a seasonal basis. When you look at the daily electricity output from a hydropower plant, it's pretty flat. I always thought it'd be cool to marry hydro and solar. Solar is very strong in the summer, and that's when hydro is not as much. And if you add storage in there, now you've got a nice balance. And you even throw in some wind too. We're starting to integrate solar with hydro. And we're going to look at storage. And it's that combination that I think is really exciting. You mentioned it being seasonal. And I believe that the most you can forecast your wind and solar assets being online is maybe a few days. How far out can you predict a hydroelectric resource being available? Well, you know, that is a really, really good question. And we're actually been working on some models to predict hydropower generation from river flow. People have looked at river flow for centuries. The records of the Nile River go back, I think, 500 to almost 1,000 years. So we've been looking at using a finite autoregressive integrative moving average model called FARIMA to try and predict hydropower generation from the flow of the last few years. I can't give you an answer right now. We're still working on it, but definitely you want to know that because when you are buying hydropower, you want to know what you're buying it in. I think it's pretty straightforward to get to about 80% renewable. I think you always need 
some sort of, as you were saying, base load in order to fill in. When the sun isn't shining, the wind isn't blowing, and you have a drought. (laughs) One of the things I was very impressed by was I was told that that Narrows facility that we visited, that that was four turbines. They each were doing 30 megawatts. So we're talking about 120 megawatts, just the house and the facility and the pipes coming off the dam. That was about an acre and a half. You wouldn't be able to get 120 megawatts from a wind farm. Why isn't that story being told more than... Well, it's exactly right. I think you've hit on... You picked up a lot. You nailed Thank you. all the, no, sincerely, because people don't get that. So it's actually at about 108 megawatts. So I think each one of the turbines is about 27, 28 megawatts. That acre and a half that you talked about can fully power 50,000 homes. Well, it's a phenomenal resource. Why not use it? Whereas if you were to do the same with solar, you'd probably be looking at over a thousand acres. You mentioned earlier some of the big innovations that are being done in hydroelectric, and one of them was designing the turbines to have aerating capability for fish. My day job is water treatment, and I found that interesting that conventional or older model turbines weren't churning up the water more than they are. Has that been a big issue in the past that even though you've got a lot of turbulence going around with the water, that it's still not aerating the water enough to maintain the fish wildlife? That's a surprise to me. Yeah, you know, again, Again, interesting observation. It's a field I'm not an expert in, so I'll give you that right now. But there is a principle, Bernoulli's principle, which talks about the velocity going over rough surfaces is faster, so pressure goes down, and so you get lift, right? And that's what I think the key is. You need smaller structures in order to create the little bubbles that will actually dissolve more of the oxygen in the water. Or you inject bubbles or you actually inject oxygen into the water as it goes through the turbine. But you, again, (laughs) raise a very good point. Why wouldn't these blades be turning up the water and enhancing the dissolved oxygen? They don't decrease the dissolved oxygen, but if you want to enhance it, you either have to inject the oxygen or you have to create the ability to create bubbles that then will absorb more of the oxygen from the air-water interface. Have there ever been any other environmental concerns associated with hydroelectric. I think you hear a lot about things building up on the dams. I think that's really more of an issue with the dams themselves. Are there any other environmental issues that come up adding a hydroelectric plant on an existing dam, let's say? No, that's a good point. That's actually a unique question. About a year ago, there was a paper that was published on methane emissions from reservoirs. It says that methane emissions from hydroelectric reservoirs are 25% more than previously thought. Well, When you look at the data, what you see is that there's actually two outliers. They're from two reservoirs in Poland that were in an urban setting where there was nutrients introduced to the river, i.e. organic waste, that then created a eutropic situation, not representative of the types of reservoirs, for example, you saw at Narrows. What proper longitudinal studies have shown, though, on the same reservoir over 40 years, that after 10 years, the amount of methane emissions from that area is no different than it was prior to flooding. There's a difference between building a new dam and using an existing dam. What happens when you power it? What we've seen, and we invented a new technology, it wasn't mine, it was Dr. Neil Simmons from Duke University who works with us. He invented a way of aerating the river, taking it from two milligrams per liter to upwards of 10 milligrams per liter. Fish are very happy above five. They're extremely happy above seven. That would be like a pristine stream in Alaska. So by repowering the dam and using this new invention, been able to 
improve the environment of that river. So we're pretty excited about that, as you can probably tell. What I want to do, and Neil is working on this, he's got a water drone, an autonomous vehicle that goes on top of the reservoir and is able to measure methane emissions every square meter. So there's a group out of Australia that actually did one of these. And what they found is that 97% of the methane emissions come from like 10% of the point sources. And also the big point is that when you aerate water, that helps eliminate a lot of the problems that a lot of these pesky microbes that like to live in yeah. oxygen-free environments. There and they create you go. A lot. That's right. Right. I, I've seen that happen quite a bit. Let's talk a little bit about you for a minute. Most of your career was in academia. Then you were Undersecretary of Energy at DOE uh, beginning in 2009. What can you tell me about that experience? It was a very fast-paced, a lot of work because we had $36 billion in Recovery Act funds in addition to the $11 billion budget. We had to get the money out. We had to do it on shovel-ready projects in renewable energy, clean coal, smart grid, you name it. We were working all day and night. If I went home before 10 at night, it was an early day. And we read tons of proposals. We reviewed them. We had external reviewers. We reviewed the external reviewers. And we got the money out. We did great projects. And the thing I'm most proud of is the team. And it was a great team of assistant secretaries, undersecretary, and secretary. We doubled the amount of renewable energy in this country in five years. And I think that's one of the legacies of President Obama that isn't talked about enough. And I'm so proud of that. It was a pretty exciting time. What about Stephen Chu? What was your thoughts about working with him? He was a secretary at the time. Extremely smart guy, very passionate about the environment. And that was really invigorating. And I also know Ernie Moniz. He's a great guy. Very fortunate to have those secretaries serve the country in that role. And let's go ahead. New administration. But what's your thoughts on Rick Perry? I don't know Rick Perry, but there's an awful lot of wind in Texas. So I think he appreciates the role of renewables, especially now that with scale become very cheap, the kind of cheap electricity that's provided the state of Texas. So I'd love to have a chance to sit down and talk to him about the future energy policy in America. And I might reach out to him and try and do that. So after that, you got involved with this. What brought you to Cube Hydro? My father, as I mentioned, my grandfather before him, my grandfather actually worked with George Westinghouse creating hydropower in this country 100 years ago. And my dad worked for Westinghouse for 37 years. So it's kind of in the blood. It was the original renewable. In some sense, it was the forgotten renewable. And it's a foundational renewable. So I think it's really important. We have, as I mentioned before, 100,000 megawatts. So that mitigates hundreds of millions of tons of CO2 going into the atmosphere over time, right? So it's really important to preserve and to repower and to make these projects environmentally sustainable. So I wanted to do something. I mean, we'd gotten out all this money and we've supported all these great innovators. I want to be part of it. I wanted to build something. And this is getting into one of my favorite topics. I'm now on to, I think, 19 episodes. I've had two episodes that had female guests. I've probably had as many with guys named Sam, which really bugs me a lot. And uh, <laughs> so, so I appreciate you doing this. Yep. So let's talk about the STEM part, women in STEM. You've been a huge proponent of women in leadership. I personally can't say enough about the need for more women in STEM fields. Why has that been a problem for so long? And how can we speed up the enrollment of more women in STEM and, and in leadership? Well, it's a great question and is something that a lot of very passionate, dedicated people have tried to address and have done great work. Here's one thing we do know 
about it. And this was a study that was done by the National Science Foundation in about 1991. And it was a longitudinal study of women that went into STEM and how long they stayed in STEM in pursuit of a career in STEM. And what they discovered was that when women can align their avocation with their vocation, in other words, avocation to help other people with their vocation in engineering, they stay in the field. So for example, I was Dean of Engineering at Duke, 50% of our students in biomedical engineering were women, roughly, you know, 40, something like that in environmental engineering are women. So when there's a need, and that's what the NSF study showed for all people who want to make a difference. And I think it's in addition to women, men, obviously, too, when you can connect what's going on in the classroom to how people can make a difference in society, it gets people really excited. When you're motivated to do something, you figure it out. And that's what I think we need to do is motivate all our students to understand why what they're learning in school is important to the future of the world. And then finally, it's a little bit political. You spent a large part of your career in the academic sector. Now you're taking over as chancellor of the SUNY system in New York. With all the talk, Christina, about safe spaces and free speech on campuses, how do you hope to keep the focus on academics and avoid all the noise out there? I'm sure you've probably had dinners with friends and they've probably gone, why would you go back to that? It just sounds so crazy these days. What were some of your thoughts? thoughts about that. I think the mission of the university is really important. It's to pass on culture to the next generation. And what is culture? Culture has a lot to do with ideas. And it's important that we have a place where people can come, share ideas, have debate, talk about the differences and similarities and understand one another. So I'm all about free speech. What I'm not about is speech that leads to violence, even though I may not like what somebody says that's rude. They have a right to be rude if they want to be rude, but not to incite violence. It's very different there. So I think that that's one of the challenges in higher ed today is to keep the focus on the purpose of the university is a place where people can come from different backgrounds with different ideas and learn to debate and hopefully learn to debate in a cordial and listening manner. And I, I freely admit when I was younger, I didn't always want to hear what other people had to say if they didn't believe the same thing I did. And I learned that doesn't get you too far in life. So the ability to be able to learn and engage with people that think differently is very important. And that's why I'm very excited about being back at the university is to ensure that we have that kind of discussion. Well, they should be very oh. lucky to have you. And we hope the best for, for oh, thank wish you. you the best on all that. Okay, getting it. back to the energy issues. Yes. <laughs> okay, so here we go. This is the last part. This is my lightning round of your thoughts on okay. different energy technologies. First one is natural gas. Great peaker. Crude oil. Nothing is more efficient. The power content of crude oil is amazing. The problem is, is that it gives off emissions. And I do believe that it is a big contributor to dynamic climate change. Nuclear. I like nuclear. We've got to learn how to manage the back end of the fuel cycle. Coal. Not so much. <laughs> wind. <laughs> yeah, love wind. But uh, we have to be sure about how we manage it, how you put up the turbines so that we don't impact the larger birds. Solar. Bright future. <laughs> Very cute. Biofuels. <laughs> I like them for 47% of the use of petroleum in this country is not for transportation. So let's use biofuels for that. Fuel cells. Need storage. Hydroelectric. Best ever. Geothermal. Pretty good. The problem with geothermal is it's costly to find where the resource is, but it's a good source. Electric vehicles. Gotta have them. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Hopefully. 
<laughs> okay. Christina Johnson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Jay. It was a pleasure. That was Dr. Christina Johnson, now former CEO of Cube Hydro Partners. I mentioned that I had a chance to meet Dr. Johnson last July at a centennial celebration at one of their operations. During the ceremony, they surprised her with the announcement that they were naming the neighboring High Rock Powerhouse, that's the building that holds the hydroelectric equipment, after her. You could tell she was truly speechless. I have pictures from that visit and more at energy-cast.com and on Instagram at Host Energy. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. Special thanks to Hannah Cohen for helping me secure this interview and arranging my visit to the Narrows facility. All guests are sent the completed podcast and raw audio the week of release to ensure they have been depicted fairly. So far, no complaints. That wraps up episode 21. Be sure to join us next week when we look at a mobile wind power design that's heading up into the skies and into battle. Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.